First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work they to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me here. Lord, as we examine your text again, we give you thanks that you have not left us on our own to seek our own way, but you've given us your revelation, your word that is trustworthy. And I pray that you would help me to make your uh, truth clear, to explain it well, and spirit that you would even help us to see how we can apply this to our lives individually. Give us insight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, uh, the letter of 1 Timothy was written uh, by Paul to help Timothy to help strengthen the church in Ephesus and to protect it, uh, particularly from false teachers. And in chapter 315, he notes that he's writing specifically that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So that's his purpose. And he began the letter by exhorting Timothy to rebuke false teachers that were uh, creeping into the church. He then addresses the need to pray for gospel advancement as he calls the men to pray. And then he addresses both how men and women should conduct themselves in worship. And now we come to chapter three. And in chapter 3, he turns to the qualifications for those who are called to lead within the church. And he communicates that there are two biblical offices in this chapter. That of elder or overseer and then deacon. talks about deacons in verse 8. I'll speak more about deacons in the weeks to come when we get to that text. But for now, today and in the next few weeks, I want to focus on the office of elder or overseer, also called pastor. And I'm actually only going to limit myself to verse 1 today on the nature of biblical eldership. So let's begin by looking at that first phrase that Paul uses in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. Now this is the second time that we've come across this phrase, a trustworthy statement, in 1 Timothy. Uh, we came across it in one fifteen. When Paul said it's a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Dan quoted it earlier. And as you recall, uh, these trustworthy statements, he uses it a number of times throughout the pastoral epistles. But what they are, are short, pithy, doctrinal statements in order to communicate real clearly 
uh, various theological truths. And the doctrinal statement that Paul's making here emphasizes the goodness of aspiring to leadership, saying it's a good thing if one has that desire. And maybe he brings this up because some of the false teachers were previously elders. And maybe there was some concern that if somebody's aspiring to leadership, it's because they want to draw some of um, the sheep, so to speak, after themselves. And maybe Timothy or others were worried that if somebody's aspiring to leadership, that's a red flag. Maybe that's why. We don't know why he addresses it, but he does say it is a trustworthy statement. It is good to aspire to pastoral leadership. As he says, it's, it's a fine work, as the NS, NAS translates it. Well, what is so good, though, then, about the office of an overseer or elder? Um, I'm going to highlight two things uh, in today's text. Uh, The nature of the eldership is good, and then the origins of eldership are good. Um, You could add to this the qualifications of eldership. I'm not going to address any of those because we're going to get to those in the weeks ahead. But really, three good reasons why eldership is a good aspiration. Let's look first at the nature of the office of elder. Paul calls it a good work. In the Greek, it's uh, kalu ergu, quite literally, a good work. Paul actually uses that same adjective, good, in 118 when he exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight. This is a good fight. It, by nature, is, it has inherent goodness. And you recall that there's a lot of things that people fight over in the world. There's a lot of reasons why people go to war. There's a lot of people who have spent their money and their lives and their blood serving self-interested people um, who are causing these wars because of greed and arrogance. And so how does one know if the fight that they're in is a good fight? Well, Paul tells Timothy, this is a good fight. This is worth spending your life, spending everything for. The work of gospel ministry. It's, it's really the only fight that has eternal ramifications. But it's not just good. It is work. Right? He calls it work, ergu. It, it takes effort. It involves suffering, sacrifice, self-control, and steadfastness. And I use those words very, uh, very particularly because of how Paul likens pastoral ministry in 2 Timothy. You can just flip over there a couple pages. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he likens to pastoral ministry to being a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Notice in verse 3, he says, Share in suffering, right, suffering, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. That is, they have to let go of things. There's a, it entails sacrifice that other thing people pursue, you can't. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he can compete according to the rules. In other words, he has to have self-control. Discipline. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And he uses farmers not only because it's hard-working to be a farmer, but also you have to be patient. You have to endure. You have to be steadfast. So Paul's point here is... the. Pursuit of ministry is, is not a com- for the comfort-loving or the ambitious, 
the lazy or the impatient. Charles Bridges, who wrote, I think, one of the best books on the Christian ministry, and that's actually what it's entitled, The Christian Ministry. He was a a Puritan. And this is what he had to say about Christian ministry in, in in his book. Indeed, no previous contemplation can give just apprehensions to its difficulties. Any more than a spectator on the field of battle can realize the intense anxiety of the actual conflict. Whatever general notions of a serious and intelligent character may be attained, much will yet be left that experience alone can supply. Much that will enforce the exhortation once given by a veteran to a young soldier, you therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the difficulties of this work to the considerate, conscientious mind must exclude any expectation of temporal ease and comfort. Many tracts of life offer a large promise of indulgence, but to this work is most especially linked the daily cross. But it's it's it goes without saying I should I should emphasize this. With all the costs entailed, uh, sorry, uh, with all the costs entailed in ministry, they're worth it. As Jesus says in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So again, this, this office entails both work and inherent goodness. But what, again, precisely does this work entail? What is the nature of the work of pastoral ministry or eldership? What do they do? What's their responsibility? Well, really, the nature of the work of elders is bound up in the terms that the Bible actually uses to describe this office. Three words in particular are used, and all three terms describe the same office. The first term is overseer, and you see that in chapter 3, verse 1. The second is elder, and the third, pastor or shepherd. And we know these words describe the same office because in the same context, they're used interchangeably. And even some have have... Um, the, the words that describe what is inherent in the word are, are used to apply to their work. And I will uh, seek to, to, to demonstrate this. Uh, but first, let me define each of these terms. The first term Paul uses for, to describe the office of elder is episkopos. That's what he uses here in 1 Timothy 3. And that's, of course, where we get the word episcopal or bishop. Uh, The word essentially just means to be an overseer or a supervisor. It's actually a word taken from uh, the secular world for like uh, an overseer, a supervisor at a construction project. It's used that way in secular writings. So an overseer was a man charged with the duty of seeing that things get done and that they get done rightly. And so it emphasizes both this responsibility of watching over, but also there's a special uh, significance to the word of being present. Right? An overseer has to see the work being done. They can't just 
uh, assume the work's getting done from a distance. So there's a personal aspect to it. It's similar like a shepherd over the sheep. Right? If the shepherd's not with the sheep, he's not shepherding. The other term the Bible uses to describe this office is elder. Uh, the Greek word is presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian. Paul uses this term actually in chapter 5, verse 17. He also just, uh, uses it to describe elders in Titus 1, 5. And we'll look at those texts shortly. Uh, but I want to point out that the, the term itself refers to uh, having an advanced age um, or being mature. Thus, the translation elder. Right? The term emphasizes spiritual maturity as a qualification for leadership. And actually, uh, the word priest actually comes from this Greek word presbuteros. And as many of you know, uh, I know a number of you grew up Roman Catholic, as I myself did. Um, priests, we referred to our priests as fathers. And in order to communicate the, the maturity, the spiritual maturity of their leadership. But I think it's also helpful just to, to clarify. I think it's better to think of elders and pastors more like older brothers than fathers. It's more appropriate because really God is our father, right? Pray to our father in heaven and Christ is our brother. Really, it's good to think of us as like older siblings. So you could picture um, parents going away on a date and the oldest brother is put in charge to make sure that things don't get out of control. Um, He might be older, he might be more mature, but he hasn't arrived yet, right? He's not the parent's but he represents the parents. He doesn't replace the parents, but he's their official representative. And I emphasize that because I think there's a tendency in some churches to elevate the office of elder to that they're almost like minor celebrities and that their opinions are like, um, you know, the voice of God, so to speak. They, they, they treat them like celebrities or spiritual gurus. In fact, I was uh, sharing with one of our missionaries this week that I personally endeavored um, to talk about my weaknesses and to, and to uh, demonstrate that I'm not something special. And I do that very purposefully because I know that the members of our church don't need me. What they need is Christ. My job is to point them to Christ. Or even more, um, even though you guys appreciate my teaching and my counsel, um, but even when it comes to your own growth, you actually need one another as much as you need me. I am just one part of the body of Christ. Um, And it's, it's important that I do my job well. I follow these standards and these expectations laid out in Scripture. But I am no more important than each one of you is to one another. That's why we emphasize the need to be involved in community groups and in fellowship gatherings, discipleship groups, because that you guys need one another. And some of you experienced it. You come to me and you ask me for help and um, I give you my counsel and you think that wasn't very helpful. But then I went and I talked with Pamela Kinoshita and my goodness, like, you know, the doors opened up and life is better now or something. And you, you've experienced that with just different re- people in the church. And that's because... We're all a part of it. We need one another. And we need to point one another to the true Savior, 
which is not ourselves, but Christ. In fact, I would rather have every person in this church involved in a community group or a discipleship group more than I would want every member of this church to give financially. Before the finance team picks up stones to stow me for saying that, I say that because the goal of our church is not financial prosperity. It's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth doesn't happen through giving. It happens through the word, through prayer, and through our interaction with one another. So even though, uh, sorry, we have two terms. Two terms we focused on already. uh, Episkopos or overseer, presbyteros or um, elder. The third term that's used to denote the office is pastor. And the word actually just means shepherd. So when you see the, hear the word pastor, just think shepherd. And the term is deliberately figurative because it emphasizes, it gives a picture. It's like a word picture to show what the work of elders is, what they're to be doing. It's to caring for sheep. It emphasizes the responsibility of watching over for guarding, for spiritually feeding. And there, there's, a, there's a sense of both protection as well as gentleness and care and responsibility. And even though this is actually uh, the, mo- the predominant term in our culture that we use to refer to uh, the pastoral office, pastor, um, it's actually only used one time in the scripture to refer to that office. And that's in Ephesians 4.11, where it talks about God has given to the church men in order to build up the body of Christ so that the working of the body might, the body itself is a, as each member grows in maturity, builds itself up in love. The work, uh, the responsibility to make sure that happens is given to the pastors. It's the only time that word is used in that context, though the verb to pastor is used in other places. So in summary, elders are to be spiritually mature men who have the authority and responsibility to teach and watch over the members of a church. Again, as I mentioned before, there's significant overlap in these terms that are used. Even though Ephesians 4.11 is is the only time the term pastor is used in reference to an office, notice in 1 Timothy, sorry, not Timothy, goodness, uh, Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. Notice how he uses the term as he speaks to elders. The word he uses in 5.1 is the word presbuteros. When he says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Interesting, he puts them on the same plane as himself, though he is an apostle. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, notice what he commands them to do. Speaking to the elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, right? The verb form of uh, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So these two texts taken together suggest that the role of 
elders is both to shepherd and to provide oversight. Paul suggests the same thing over in Acts 20. This is why I selected it as our scripture reading, because there's many parallels, obviously, to uh, this, this portion in Timothy. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus together, and he says this. He calls them together in verse 17. And then in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Right? Suggesting they're shepherds. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Moreover, the same qualifications that are described for overseers here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are used in Titus chapter 1 to describe the office of elder. Different word that's used. If you look at Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he says, instead of calling him overseers, he calls them elders, presbyteros. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every time as I directed you. Then a few verses later, the same term, overseers, that he uses in 1 Timothy is used to introduce the list of qualifications. Right? So they're supposed to establish elders And then he says an overseer must be above reproach. The terms are being used interchangeably. It's one office. So an elder is a pastor, is an elder, is an overseer. Uh, They're not different offices, but the same office. It's also important to highlight that there's no hierarchy seen in this office. There's no biblical evidence that there was such a thing as a lay elder and a staff elder. Now, we use those terms just to signify those who we free up financially. But it's not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is those who um, are affirmed by the church and the church leadership to be elders have equal authority. And they work together to lead the church together as a team. So there are some elders that will be provided for financially. Uh, actually, in 1 Timothy 5, uh, this is made clear. If you turn in for just a couple p- pages over to 1 Timothy 5, a lot of Bible flipping, but let's do the nature of the, of the, the idea here of eldership. I want you to see all of what the Scripture has to say about this. He says in verse 17, let the elders, presbyteros is used here. Remember in 3.1, it was episkopos. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. A laborer deserves his wages. So he's saying that if a person, it's right to free up a person to have the time to study, to pray in order to lead the church. You should support them financially. However, this is not a pursuit that should be Uh, undertaken in order to gain an income. And in fact, this is made clear in the context. Just look what he says uh, in uh, just a few verses earlier. Verse 5. It was a desire for income that characterized the false teachers in Ephesus who imagined that godliness was a means of gain. He says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, For we've brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing with such things, we should be content. Right. So he's saying it's okay to free up elders in order so that they can serve the church so they don't have to be divided in their time because it takes time and work and energy. But this is not a pursuit that should be done for the sake of financial gain. This is not a profession. In other words, it is not a um, a vocation. Well, the, the word vocation means calling in a sense. It is a calling. But as we use that term. It's not a career. Paul continues in verse 11, you might notice, after saying we should be content. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. That is greed. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Peter also, when he's talking to the elders in first in First Peter chapter five, he says, elders are not to serve for shameful gain. But willingly, eagerly. And this is exactly why Paul reminded the Ephesian elders going back to Acts 20. The same themes coming up in this in each of these um, texts about eldership and for good reason. This is what he says, to the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty thirty three. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's talking to the elders. He's trying to help the elders understand it is good to have a desire to want to care for the flock, but not to take from the flock to provide for yourself, but to give, right? The calling of eldership is a calling to give, not to gain. And I think that's been mixed up in in history. And I think even today, many people see pastoral ministry as a profession, as a way to get a good income. But it's not only a a, a love of money that woos people today, even to, to get into pastoral ministry. Others are drawn out to it out of a love for power and control or to, to, to get respect or admiration. Others are drawn just to, because they love to study and they read and they can get paid to do so. But this is this is like the one who, who enjoys feeding themselves, but not because they um, want to feed others, but because they enjoy they enjoy studying for their own sake. This is like a, a father who works hard every day, goes out in the field, labors, gets an income, and then takes that income, and instead of bringing it back to his family, he goes and spends it at the bar, indulging his lusts. Pastors who just read in order to write for themselves or to study for themselves, but not because they care about other people knowing the truth, are doing it for the wrong motives. It's self-centered. Others are drawn to pastoral ministry because they're lazy, because they in many contexts, they lack accountability. They can hang out in coffee shops and spend the whole day talking with strangers, saying they're doing evangelism. Now, maybe they're attempting. um, And I'm all for pursuits of evangelism, but it's very easy and especially in an American context to to waste time. But also for missionaries, you talk to many missionaries on the field 
And it's just heartbreaking to hear how many missionaries just go because they want to live it up in another country. And they're not making sacrifices. They're not laboring. And that's why we need to have good relationships with our missionaries to make sure they are doing the work of the ministry. And I bring this up just to be honest. Like you can't just assume because a person's an elder or because they're a pastor um, that they're always going to be above reproach. They always use their time the way they need to or that their motives are pure. We need to be we, we need to know the men who oversee us. We're elders are flesh and blood and we struggle with the same things anybody else do, does. So contrast this self-seeking in ministry that often characterizes pastors today, elders today, with what Paul tells the Thessalonians. This is Second Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. That's the heart of the elder. It's not wrong to be paid or be freed up by the church. It's a good thing. I so appreciate it. I'd be so limited in what I can do for caring for you guys if if you didn't free me up financially. But I'll also say this. Go on record formally. I would willingly give up my income if if that's what the church needed. And I would still serve. I'd be limited in how much I could serve, but I would willingly do it because we don't we're not serving for the sake of gain. We're serving for the sake of growth. And that's really what should characterize anybody aspiring to the office of elder, whether they're paid or whether they're not. It's the growth of the church, the needs of the body that matters most. So to be a pastor and elder is a commitment to let go of wants and desires. It's choosing pain and turning from pleasure. Humiliation rather than affirmation. Loss rather than gain. And, and just in case you think I might be over being a little bit over the top in saying this, Think of how, consider how Paul describes his and the other apostles' ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I think he would be saying very similar things to many American church leaders as he does to the Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. 
the refuse of all things. He says later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, imitate me as I seek to imitate Christ. Brothers, this is the example that we're given to follow. This is what pastoral leadership should look like. And, and I emphasize that again because we live in a culture that, seems, that wants to elevate the celebrity. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a, a bit embarrassed and ashamed sometimes. Even, even in my doctoral classes, I've had fellow pastors. We'd have, you know, the guys come in, these famous pastors come in, give lectures. And there'd be like lines of men wanting to get their books signed. And I, it's, I get it. I had some books signed. But... It's easy to forget that just because, to elevate the celebrity rather than recognizing what we're looking for is men who are willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. That's the example. Not fame, not book publications, not, you know, a million sermons on um, sermonaudio.com or whatever website. The goal is lost for the sake of the church. It reminds one of that ad that Ernest Shackleton put out when he went on that famous journey to Antarctica. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold. Long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition and event of success. Church leadership is a humbling enterprise. As, as Jesus told his disciples, you know this passage well. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You're thinking, there's only one elder in this room. <laughs> yeah, I can, get, I can get pretty intense when I know what I need to hear. I'm preaching to myself here, guys. Next, let's look at the divine origins of the office. By the way, I hope there's more elders to come. I hope even the Lord's stirring in your own heart that desire. So I say that this office has divine origins because of the context of 1 Timothy. Again, Timothy's been explaining how the household of God is supposed to be ordered. And you recall how that word household, it's the same word, house, oikos, that's used to describe the temple. And this is temple or, uh, imagery that's used throughout this uh, epistle. And in chapter 3, he's explain the qualifications for leadership in this new house of worship called the church. And so just as God had the authority and took action to establish the priests as his leaders in worship in the tabernacle and temple, likewise, he appoints elders to be the leaders of his church, the new temple of worship uh, during the church age. And besides deacons, there is no other official role instituted in the church. There's just elders and deacons. That is who God appoints to lead uh, worship in the church. So it's not just that this office is instituted by God, but actually the, the elders themselves, the individuals themselves are appointed by God. 
I get this from Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to all yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this is something that the Spirit uh, creates. So it's not a calling a person just decides for themselves. It's not like somebody says, yeah, you know, pastoral ministry sounds fun. I think I'll go to seminary, get a degree. That often does happen. That is often what happens as people get into ministry. But in order for it to be effective, it's got to be something that the Lord gifts the person to and, and appoints. Of course, it begs this question. How does one know if God is calling one to eldership, to pastoral ministry? Well, usually three things are what are identified. First of all, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 1, they have a desire for, to do the work. Um, and that word, if you recall, means to actually strive after. It, it, it's it's uh, to, to reach out. There's an activeness. They're already doing the work. Uh, one of the things I look for uh, in elders are who are the people that are doing the work of the elder already? Not because they're trying to be appointed that way, but because they just love the church. They love the word and they want to see it explained. So first of all, they have a desire for the work. Second, and they're actively pursuing it. Secondly, of their giftedness. Not only um, uh, do they have a love for uh, teaching the word of God, they're actually decent at it. Now, it takes time. You listen to some of my old sermons, even at Grace and Truth, um, pretty weak. It takes time to cultivate the ability to teach. Same thing in community groups or in, in any setting. It, the more experienced, typically the better you get. But usually, we're, it's pretty obvious if a person's gifted in something or if it's just difficult and clunky. And it doesn't take an expert to identify that. Usually, it's pretty obvious to everybody. And not only in their giftedness uh, are they, are they um, good at it, but good. they also need to be good in the sense that they're accurate. They need to rightly handle the word of truth, as Paul tells Timothy. They need to accurately interpret the Bible. They're not just um, communicating their own opinions. Um, they're, not ju- they're not abusing the word of God to twist it uh, for their own ambitions, but they're just wanting the word of God to be made clear. So desire, giftedness. The third thing is character. They need to have the characteristics that um, are exemplified here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in Titus 1. The qualifications for the office. So after these things are identified, really the church as a whole affirms them in this work. So this is not a, a calling that a person takes on themselves. They might have the desire, they might be doing this work, but ultimately you know if you're called to eldership when the church leadership lays hands on you and the rest of the church says, yes, we want this man to lead us. We trust him. We trust their ability to teach and their desire to want to serve the church. That's what we want to look for in our elders. So God appoints elders to lead the church through the affirmation of the church. Um, I also want to point out that the biblical model for church leadership is not just a singular leader, but really a plurality of leaders, a plurality of elders. And um, it's interesting. I'm just going to defend this. Oh, that's point three on there. Um, Whenever... Official church decisions are made in the New Testament. 
aside from apostolic decrees, right, the, the apostles were direct re- appointed by Christ, directly responsible for establishing churches. So aside from their apostolic decrees, every official church declaration was made by a plurality of leaders, not a singular leader. Every time. And the, the, the verses are there behind you in, in, in Acts. Moreover, Paul, in writing to Titus, told him to appoint elders, plural, in every town, in every church. The Apostle James says that when a member is sick, they are to call for the elders, plural, to pray, assuming there is more than one elder. Also, in his epistle, Peter addresses the elders, plural, all of which suggests strongly that the church was led by a plurality of men who were equal in authority. Of course, this is not how many churches have been led throughout history. Um, throughout history, most churches were led by a singular leader. I won't get into all the history of it, but just for the sake of time. Um, but even today, churches are often led by a singular leader. It's called a, a, an Episcopalian form of government from that word episkopos. And uh, this form of government, most churches point to men like the Apostle James, Timothy, and Titus as those singular leaders. And so there is some biblical warrant to it, but I think it's best to, to, to recognize even those men were leaders among leaders. Like James in Acts 15, even though he was an influential leader, uh, his voice did, did not supersede the other elders there in Acts chapter 15. Also, he exhorts his readers to call on the elders, plural. So even affirming a plurality of eldership in James 5. Timothy and Titus also, as you know, were apostolic delegates. Paul sent them as representatives of him to help create order in the churches that were kind of coming unraveled. And so even they were delegates by an apostle. They, weren't necessarily, they, they probably were elders, but they still had an, uh, an elevated influence uh, than I think we would expect to have in the church today. Maybe the closest thing you could have is like a church planter who has already been ordained by another church and is trying to plant a church or restore a church, having that same sort of influence. But again, the goal is always for that individual to raise up other elders. And the church really isn't healthy until multiple elders are serving in that church. It's, it's a priority, as Paul tells Titus, Titus 1.5 of government on the opposite side is where the governing power is actually in the hands of the people. Majority rule. It's a, a pure democracy. It's called congregational. And at this point, our church is a congregational form of government according to our bylaws. With each person, whether a pastor or a lay person, having one vote in major decisions. And the, the, the strongest support for this form of government is Matthew 18 where the issue of church discipline is uh, ultimately acted upon by the church. But I think it's helpful to point out, and important to point out, that even in Matthew 18, um, when the matter is brought before the church, it wasn't so that the church would vote on whether this person should be disciplined out of the church, should be pursued. It was a call for the members of the body as a whole to pursue this erring brother so that they don't, fall away into the grasp of Satan. It's a call to um, minister to this erring brother. It's not a vote on whether we should keep him or or kick him out. 
There's no idea at all in that passage um, suggesting that they voted on this decision. I think it'd be awful if they did, frankly. And so when we consider all the Bible has to say about the functioning of churches, it seems clear that the most biblical way for the church to be governed is through a plural team of elders, gifted and spiritually mature men who make decisions based upon an accurate interpretation of Scripture and a sincere care for the glory of Christ and the spiritual growth of the members of the church. So I think elders should solicit strong congregational input on any major decision and the congregation as a whole should joyfully submit to whatever the decisions um, elders ultimately make and joyfully submit their, their leadership, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Likewise, elders should be accountable to the members and yet respected by the members. To put it another way, they need to uh, seek out such accountability and openness and they also need to live respectable lives. And this is why Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would continue to refine our church, refine our leaders, that you would establish a plurality of elders in our church in time when you see fit. And Lord, I I pray that you would continue to uh, give us wisdom that we might function more and more according to your word as a church. We don't want to be defined by our culture. We don't want to be defined by any individual's preferences. Lord, we want to follow you. And I pray that you would continue to give us insight and understanding to know how we might do that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.